Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every single week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Future Classics. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me for Future Classics Week, Nicole Davis. How are you? Uh, classically uh, tired, classically have my wine, classically sitting on my floor playing with my cat. Uh, it's all the I'm doing all the classic things for Future Classic Week. <laughs> and David, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm sitting in a chair. I don't know if that's going to affect. It's what I usually do, so I guess that's classic. Sure. And everyone takes a lame joke and runs with it. (laughs) All righty. So this week is Future Classics, which means one of us has the opportunity to pick a film that has come out in the last decade. So at this point, 2010 and onward, that you think in some capacity will be a future classic of cinema. And we've put qualifiers in this before. It's a future art house classic or a future horror classic or It'll be the kind of movie that film students watch and everyone else is really bored by. And we've talked about all those qualifiers before, and this might have some of those. I'm not sure yet. I picked this week's movie. But I do want to go ahead and let David announce next week's movie, Around the World, an international pick. David, what are we going to be watching? Yes. So I uh, had wanted to go a certain direction with this, but found the movies I was trying to go for were difficult to find and didn't uh, or not in the usual kind of places and i don't want to make it too difficult for either of you so i'm going with one that i know nicole has seen and brett i imagine you will enjoy an introduction to uh, which is the classic jackie chan film police story Woo! right on i have maybe never seen a jackie chan movie Oh, well, this is a good one to start with. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Wait, I saw the one that's apparently not a Jackie Chan movie, at least in terms of tone and style, which was like a drama he did a couple years ago, The Foreigner. I saw that. Oh, so, okay. Oh. That's all I've seen of Jackie Chan. All right, I'm looking forward to that. Police story. Uh, check it out for next week. Uh, this week was my pick Future Classics, and I picked The Last Black Man in San Francisco. It came out last year in 2019. Uh, Jimmy Fails dreams of reclaiming the Victorian home his grandfather built in the heart of San Francisco. Joined on his quest by his best friend, Mont, Jimmy searches for belonging in a rapidly changing city that seems to have left them behind. Uh, The reason I picked this for Future Classics, uh, I just saw this this year, so I didn't see it when it came out. Uh, but I've since watched it a couple times this year. And gosh, if there's not a film in recent memory that can just bring me to tears with its beauty, <laughs> it's this movie. Its movie is is so gentle and warm and and captures so many beautiful human emotions in such an amazing way. Both visually, the film is like a visual poem of color and unique shots and unique sets and locations to phenomenal writing and it just feels like a amazing amazing time capsule that captures uh, a lot of the issues of our time things like gentrification and evolving cities and neighborhoods and what it means to 
to be a black man living in any of that. Um, our, you know, our two two leads are black, and and they spend a lot of time in a primarily white neighborhood that is becoming more white. Um, and then on top of that, it's just and it's an incredibly human story. Everything about this is just human, and I I think that's the best way I can describe it. I just it's it's a beautiful movie, and that's why I wanted to pick it because I think people will look back at this, and it'll be. It'll not only be emblematic of all those things, but hopefully emblematic of some awesome careers, because I think that all the people involved in this who are all fairly early in their careers, if not at the very beginning of their careers, um, are hopefully going to go on and do really cool things. So that's that's my take at the, at the top here for why I think The Last Black Man in, France, in, in San Francisco uh, could be a future classic. Uh, but let's let's go ahead and just start digging into some of our discussion topics. We have quite a bit of them. Um, first, I'd like to talk about Jimmy and Mont in particular because this this centers around Jimmy, played by Jimmy Fails, and the character is Jimmy Fails. Uh, this movie is loosely autobiographical, but also based on someone he knew growing up. And him and his best friend Montgomery live at Montgomery's house with Montgomery's dad, played by Danny Glover. How cool was that, by the way? Who doesn't love Danny Glover? Um, and and they, they go every day to this house uh, that Jimmy believes um, is his grandfather built in the 1940s, coming home from World War II. And he was one of the, he was the first black man in San Francisco in, in, in what Jimmy believes. And they go to this house every day. And they 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 fix it up. They paint it, and they do the gardening, and all while just this horribly annoying old white couple lives there and is just frustrated by why they keep showing up. Uh, well, okay, I don't know that's up. fair. Yeah, this guy shows up at their house every day and like trespasses on their property, and like. You know, yeah, she's a, she's a bit abrasive about it, but I feel like this is the culmination of years of her being like, oh, okay, can you please not come to our house and do this anymore? And he just keeps showing up and keeps showing up. And like, they don't call the cops <laughs> on him, but they're obviously very frustrated. She's very frustrated by it. I, I suppose so. I just, for me, when she just starts, like the opening scene with her is her throwing her groceries at him. And I just, I find them... I don't know, you know, the, the, in the in the movie, both of both of our leads kind of remark about how these people don't really care that they live in this beautiful old house, and they're not really upkeeping it the way they should, and that's why they come around and do a lot of these things in order to maintain this house. And I, I just, I don't know, I feel like I'm inherently inclined to side with the trespasser, because he's taking care of this beautiful old home. Does he ever give them a? I mean, I mean there's a lot of assumptions there. Like, we don't know if they, does he ever give them the chance to like take care of it. Yeah, that, that's fair. He he has like an ownership over it. He 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 feels very attached to it. It's very much part of his identity. Um, but they show up there all the time, every day. They get yelled off. They come back. Uh, he's painting and gardening and taking out the not taking out the trash. That means you have to get inside. He doesn't get inside till later. Uh, so right off the bat, this movie opens. I think on a preacher, which we have in our docket. Um, and I'm going to search word search preacher here to find it. All right. The street preacher. Uh, yeah. So there's a street preacher and he has the same shtick he gives every single day uh, in this neighborhood outside of San Francisco. And they pass him every single day on their way to come to this house. What were your guys impressions on entering this movie and being met with that? Because it's such an interesting intro to the movie. This is it, bro. 
final frontier of manifest destiny. Last hand to the city. Man, two steps further, you'll be drinking that filthy salt water. But we built these ships. <laughs> Nicole, you put it in the docket. Yeah, I was like... <laughs> Okay. Well, I mean, it's a it's certainly a a clever device to sort of jumpstart the themes mm-hmm. of the movie. Um, you know, the preacher's opening. Uh, this this opening bit concludes with him, uh, you know, exhorting his his congregation, such as it is, of the two guys at the bus stop. Um, to fight for their land and fight for their homes. And of course that's going to be a running thing throughout the movie is Jimmy fighting for this house. Um, but I mean, it's also, (sighs) I don't know. I think it's a, it's a, it's a good shorthand for the diverse kinds of people that live in a city. It's a good, it's a good he's a good central figure to have to kind of uh contrast against the backdrop where there are people uh picking up hazardous materials by the old naval shipyard um this actually is in San Francisco, but it's right on the outskirts this was the the Bayview hunters Point area uh and the old naval shipyard has been uh was declared a super fund site. Uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, and, and um, they believe radioactive materials were leaking into the neighborhood. Uh, so there have been many protests and, and um, you know, a lot of neighborhood outcry about the attempted developments, uh, the attempted development of the neighborhood with this stuff they believe still in the soil. Um, so, I mean, it's... It's an example of um, a man speaking out against a backdrop of neglect. Um, right. Especially neglect by the U.S. government in particular with all the naval ships in the background. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think it's really, it's a nice symbolic thing. But, you know, on the other hand, it, a little part of me was like, uh because it's, it's because it's shorthand because it's it's easy you know it's a sim it's a symbolic sort of person it's a symbolic you know they get to just out and out say the themes of the movie right uh, <laughs> they do yeah you know? so yeah. i mean but i mean i liked him he was He's one of the better street preachers I've seen, certainly. He reminded certainly. me of a guy who likes to walk around some of the uh, the Boston tea stops. You know, I've seen this guy in Downtown Crossing a couple times, walking up and down the platform and giving his sermon and everybody pretty much paying him no mind. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm still going on with it every day. So, Yeah. You get the you get the sense that he's been doing this a long time, and you have uh, Jimmy and Mont sitting there, probably watching him every single day, and it's like this is a thing on repeat. And I'll, as Nicole says, it is a little heavy-handed. You know, it comes out and it's like, here's the themes, which it does it in a in a 
way that is true to life enough to feel natural. It's not just like their opening conversation is two people being like, man, white people, right? We're black. Uh, it's instead, <laughs> you know, something that is, that is believably uh, in this world and something that they would, they would face every single day. Yeah. I, one thing I also really find striking at the beginning of this film as well is you have this shot right before you get to the preacher where you have this, this young black girl on the street walking down the sidewalk and picking up a flower and like trying to like hand it to this just ET like force of, you know, it, it's almost like the guys in the hazmats of ET, how they're just, they feel so alien and out of place um, to the guy that's in the hazmat suit, picking up all the garbage. And then the preacher makes the comment, you know, like they're out here wearing all of this. They don't care that we're not like, we're not the ones being protected here. And, and that visual, particularly with the little girl is just really, really striking to me. Uh, but yeah, it is, it is certainly very telly. <laughs> and, and fortunately, I think the movie does a very good job with getting much more showy, but yes, uh, very, very telly at the beginning. Um, Let's also talk a bit about the actual house that they keep going to, this Victorian-style house <laughs> overlooking the Golden Gate. Um, is there such a thing as house porn? Because I think this qualifies from Nicole. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of this yeah. episode just being Nicole gushing about the house. Oh. It's a... It's a <laughs> It's a beauty of a house. But also, like, I love how the white people added what the sauna room or whatever. Like, right. Do you want to go for a schwitz? A schwitz. Not, a, not a bad, not a bad addition. <laughs> no, no. But I mean, you know, this, it's got, oh, the, the wood carving throughout the house is just mm-hmm. stunning. You know, the balustrades and the wall paneling and the columns and the archways and the, and it's all just sort of warmly gleaming at you. And it's absolutely gorgeous. And there's a secret room behind the bookcase. And it's <laughs> I, I love when he goes and scares people <laughs> from it when the house is on the market. Room behind the bookcase. Yes, that is hilarious. <laughs> uh, it's true. I would, I would kill for the secret bookcase room. That's a dream. Like one day I, I hope to be able to put that into a house. I, I would hope to live in a house like this, just not in San Francisco, because I'll never afford it. Right. <laughs> I do yeah, not want to spend $4 million dollars on it. <laughs> yeah. I, I love when they when they first get into the house, because what ends up happening is this white couple moves out um, because her sister died, and presumably the house was in the family, and now the sisters are fighting over the house, and her and her husband are no longer living there, and Jimmy decides, all right, we're, we're going to go squat there. We're going to go get all my all my stuff from my dad that, that, you know, was no longer, there was no longer space for it. So he has to go to his aunt. We'll talk about her separately. Um, but he brings all his stuff because his dad once lived in this home in the nineties when he was growing up and they set up shop inside this house. They start repairing it. They start trying to put bills in their name. Um, you know, pulling the whole squatters right thing as as the realtor would say, um, when he finds out that they are indeed staying in the home. Um, but you get inside this house and it's just, Nicole, you're so right. It's the warmest lighting. Like there's these shots where everything's very dark and then they finally start, you know, individually, you see shots of Jimmy just, you know, just putting in light bulbs because they've taken all the light bulbs out and, and just the, the house starts warming more and more as time goes on until you eventually reach kind of the pinnacle scene of the play. And the house kind of grows with the characters in that way. You start seeing more of it and you start 
feeling this weird connection to the house that it's it is a major character in this story yeah absolutely it's a it's a it's a gorgeous house with a with a lot of character and you really get a, a feeling of for the people that live in this house uh what it means to them like their their attachment to it their relationship to it is really special absolutely and i also do love nicole you mentioned like the columns and the balustrades i i think the correct way to, to describe it all is columns and shit man which is what kofi says when he walks in <laughs> um Kofi is one of their one of their friends that we see throughout the film quite a bit. Uh, Kofi is kind of part of this this you know group of friends that kind of just hang out in the corner talking shit. And Nicole put their put them in our docket to talk about. And there and, really isn't another way to describe what they're doing. No, there <laughs> isn't. And and he's like the pinnacle of a. You can tell he has a soft soul, perhaps even more so than the rest of his friends. And he wants to open up and he doesn't know how to be vulnerable with his friends. And he can kind of get a little bit of that with Jimmy and, and, and Montgomery. And he just can't get that with his buddies on, on the street corner. And, uh, and the guy that plays Kofi was, uh, for a short time, kind of a, a big deal in San Francisco because he was awarded a $13 million settlement by, uh, by the city because the police had been found for falsely framing him for a murder. Um, so he was actually running an after-school program when they were trying to cast kids for the movie as extras. And when they met him and they heard his story, they actually hired him on the spot without knowing whether or not he was an actor. Uh, he's not. Neither is Jimmy. Um, but yeah, Kofi's in this, in this kind of, you know, group of dudes hanging out on the corner and that's all we really know about them well i mean he's kind of striking in a couple of ways one he's about a head taller than everybody else yeah Um, right but two he's just most of the time just sort of staring thoughtfully off into the distance and mm-hmm. like, even when his friends are giving him a hard time about um, deciding not to fight with rivals in another part of the city, um, and you know, he's just got this. He he's got this reluctance to reluctance to be hostile. But not, and I mean, but that's as strongly as I would put it. I wouldn't say, you know, like, oh, he's got this gentleness to him. Cause, no, but no, there, <laughs> just there, this, this reluctant to be riled. You there know? is there is a a feeling among them, and this is also demonstrated through the play that there has there has to be a certain amount of uh, showing of strength. Like, there's a certain machismo that you have to have. You know, like he go he goes to the house, but then when he uh, is around his other friends and he's going to talk about it. He's going, he's talking about them like they're soft because of, you know, they put up lace curtains and they're, they're, you know, it's very, it's very effeminate, which is not what he is putting on this front to be. I also want to say um, very obviously we are three white people uh, <laughs> and I don't want to try to report to be able to speak to the experiences of, uh, of, a, of a black man. So I, I 
you know, I'm trying to phrase this all as, as best I can without trying to step over any lines. And I apologize if I do. Um, yeah, I, I think there is definitely a bit of, uh, masculinity that he feels and that they all feel, um, being there in that corner talking shit that they have to be tough in a way. Yeah. Because in, in some ways I, I think they feel like it's expected Mm-hmm. of yes. them you know there's this there's this image in their head of what manhood means and and it seems like they associate it with being tough and getting into fights and um you know just um you know giving each other a hard time you know as kidding but kind of not you know it's yeah. kind of kind of mean <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's still sort of understood that they're still friends uh, and they're still supposed to be loyalty, even when they say, you know, rotten things about your parents. Um, yeah. Right. But yeah, there was. Um, oh, gosh, what was I going to say? <laughs> I, I do want to call out as well that, you know, you have these these people in the corner that to me, it feels almost Shakespearean and a lot of this play does to me like like a lot of this movie feels like a play where they're just kind of like chorus yeah they're the chorus in the background they're kind of jeering at everything happening on the sidelines and um i i love that part of them and 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 also you notice as you talk about how like kofi has a slightly different demeanor than the other guys around him and montgomery picks up on that because montgomery is an aspiring playwright in the movie and he's writing a play about kofi um and he'll they'll all get into this big fight outside at night out, out in front of Montgomery's house. And this is the scene Nicole was talking about where he doesn't want to fight the other guy and, and they're giving him shit for it. And he comes out and starts like stage directing them. And he's like, you're doing great work. Yeah. I really love where this is going. You're, it's very authentic. Just, you know, stand here. Like he, he starts stage directing his idea of what this is because he he sees that in Kofi. He sees there's a there's a very different personality at play there, um, and we well, unfortunately don't get a lot of that. And I think that's because Kofi's character puts up all those all those barriers, or as Montgomery would would say later in the movie, is put in a lot of boxes. I think oh. he, uh, I think he sees it too as theatrics. It's just I just want to throw on real quick is you know the way that they are always talking to each other and in fronting like that it is a you know it is a little bit of of theatrics and and putting on a show but nicole oh, you remember what you were going to say peacocky yeah i did yeah. remember <laughs> no what i was going to say has has more to do with um economic circumstances than anything else because i've i've seen this in all colors is this this insecurity that some people will get and project onto other people with it's like you think because you have you know x great thing that you're better than us don't you you think that you're high and mighty because you have this great house or because you have that great car you think you're better than us don't you whereas the person who you know has that thing or lives in that place has has not done anything to you know try to lord it over anyone they and oftentimes doesn't even mention it to anyone Mm. And it's just a, you know, part of the, part of the giving each other a hard time is insecurity. Yeah. You know, it's like, can I, can I make sure that we're all on the same level? 
that no one here is better than I am. And if somebody does start acting like they're better than I am, we'll pull them right back down. Yeah. Yeah. I think you see all of that kind of break a bit when Kofi uh, gets shot and killed. Spoiler alert for this movie, in case you didn't know we were going to talk about plot points. Uh, And you have the the (laughs) friend who, uh, you know, one of the guys that was on the corner with them and he's coming up to, to Jimmy and Mont and he's, being real tough, you know, and the, the other guys are encouraging him like, yeah, fight them. You know, this is their, 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 I don't know, talking crap about why, why did Kofi have to die? Fight him for that. And the guy just ends up burying his face in Jimmy's chest and crying. And, you know, when, yeah. that, when it all comes down to it, like they, they're putting up this front, but they've got this other side to them. They don't feel like they should be able to, or can show. Yeah, I mean, there's a great moment in that exchange where what causes this guy to let his guard down is, is Jimmy says, you know, he was my friend too. Like, and because you, you, you have this interesting relationship between Kofi and, and Jimmy and Mont and Nicole, you, you referenced it in our docket as well, because Jimmy and, and Kofi in particular, there's a stint where, you know, Jimmy lives in this house in his adolescence. His dad loses the house. Uh, he lives in a group home for a time. Uh, he has all these kind of different steps where he never really had a stable footing growing up and Kofi was also in the group home but bigger and older so when kids would you know gang up on Jimmy Kofi would defend him so there is this there's this uh, you know this long-standing brotherhood between Jimmy and Kofi uh, even if we don't really see it until later on in the movie particularly once Kofi's gone Um, and I love the scene in the movie where Jimmy is talking about his last interactions with Kofi. And, you know, he says, Kofi said some really hurtful shit to me. Some of the worst things that anyone has ever said to me. Um, But he also defended me growing up because people aren't just one thing. And, and I think that the movie and the play at the end, which we can talk about kind of separately, because I think it's its own thing captures that really well, that all these characters can get put in the boxes and they have been by these societal structures bringing them into these neighborhoods and gentrifying them out of where they grew up and and where their roots are and there's so much more than the boxes they get stuck into and i think this movie just does a beautiful job with that and it's a very human thing uh and and kofi in particular is a great catalyst for that yeah Yeah, i mean it, it shows that it's a really good illustration of how people can live in different boxes at the same time because you you can have I remember when I was in high school I had like three very distinct friend groups and they didn't mix with each other and being with these different groups of friends brought out different aspects of my personality so it's like it was a different box for each group right you know a, friend group A and friend group B and then you go home to your family and that's a whole other box that you get into or a whole you know a whole other sphere of influence or whatever you want to call it and it's and again it also reinforces that people aren't just one thing you know people are each person knows someone differently you know, everyone in their lives knows them a little bit differently. I believe than yeah. another friend does. I believe the uh, the term is code switching. Yeah, 
it's uh, it, it's something that uh, is well documented. And made, it's something that started as a, as a language thing, but has kind of turned um, into a, a phrase for how we all kind of, as Nicole was saying, you know, you switch between friends, friend groups, and uh, you switch kind of the way that you talk, you interact, or maybe more sarcastic with these people. Um, I believe Jim Gaffigan has a great bit about it, where he's like, "Cause there's nothing more stressful than mixing two groups of friends." It's like, you know, don't be surprised when I start talking with a British accent. That kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. you're you're absolutely right, and and I also I want to backtrack just a smidge too, because Nicole, you mentioned these different groups that, that Kofi is in and how Kofi has that mindset of trying to kind of drag Jimmy back down to be back on the same level. And it's funny because like Jimmy doesn't even really own this house. And I'm not sure if that's ever explicitly told the to Kofi, even though I'm sure Kofi knows. Um, and there's a great moment in the movie where toward the beginning where uh, Mont and, and Jimmy are getting uh, shovels to go, uh, garden the house and you know keep in mind that when they get stuff to go back to the house it is a trek like as nicole said this is not in directly in san francisco whereas the house is um so they, they they take buses they ride their skateboard they run it takes them a while to get there um and all of a sudden uh jimmy's cousin rolls up in this car that is just decked out to be lived in there's lights all over it and there's like curtains on the windows and and mont says hey isn't that the car that that you lived in for a time because jimmy had also lived in a car for a time and sure enough his cousin took it from him and now his cousin was living in it and his coven his cousin offers to drive them to the city and he makes a comment where he's like hey you know no one owns anything like i don't own this car but I didn't really take it from you because you didn't own it that much either. And there is this element of fleeting um, things in life because the moment he makes that comment is when they're watching a uh, a large apartment building get demolished that previously had over 100 rent-controlled units. Presumably people they knew live there. And he makes that comment about the car, you know, like you don't really own anything. And I think that speaks to kind of the gentrification that you see throughout this movie, you know, that nothing is, is permanent in this life. And this movie does a really beautiful job of, of, of showing you that. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, apparently one of the issues when filming this was that the neighborhoods they were filming in were actually changing so fast that there were so many new constructions and things being demolished that it became problematic because they'd film and then there'd be things in shots where they had to go to reshoots or something like that, that they didn't have to redo the entire thing because it would look so different. Um, which is, if that's not emblematic of a movie that's largely about gentrification, I don't know what is. Um, because, yeah, I mean, this presumably this this neighborhood that the house is in was once... I don't believe it was once largely African American. I think it was largely Asian, if I remember well, correctly. In the movie, the, the tour guide, yeah, he mentions that like at first it was uh, primarily Asian, and then I think like they didn't re- then they referred to it as like the Harlem of the West. Oh right, right, right. Oh, the tour guide. Can we talk about the tour yes. guide <laughs> that rolls up on the segways with all the oh. all the people wearing the little segway helmets and uh, is is explaining the neighborhood to them <laughs> and. Uh, Ooh, there's something about like I don't know. There's something weird about people being tourists inside of everyday culture of other people that I find so bizarre. 
I don't know how to I put see it. them every fall. We yeah. have Segway tours through Salem. Oh, right. Um, sure. <laughs> in the autumn. And it's, it is really strange because it's, <laughs> they really don't go a whole lot beyond walking speed. Right. So you sort of wonder why don't, why don't you just do the walking tours? But it's, you know, you, you'd get more tired walking than riding right. the Segway, I suppose. So you could go a little bit further afield without getting exhausted. But I mean, it's, there's no avoiding looking dorky on a Segway. There just no. isn't. No, Nobody looks not. cool on a Segway. <laughs> yeah. If there's any industry that I, I am okay with COVID killing, it is the uh, Segway tour industry. <laughs> Wait, why would it though? I mean, well, I did. But those Everybody's companies. <laughs> I mean, what do you think those companies are going to weather? Like, I'm pretty sure there's not a ton of over. Like, who's still making segways? Are those like, even things you can go buy anymore? Downtown uh, Chicago, my friend. Just like Nicole, uh, all, all summer <laughs> long. Not, I haven't been downtown this summer because I'm working from home all summer. But uh, my goodness, is it? A, you'll see groups of like 50 of them just moving along and, and and nicole's right like a a it's like very walking speed and b everything they're telling you is like usually very surface level which is definitely the, the case in this particular group um but i i think the issue i have with it is that in this movie in particular it does such a great job of showing this at least this tour group being so representative of white people going through areas to learn about the culture when for them, it's almost like a novelty because at the end of it, as they're going away, he's like, now we're going to go check out where X did Y. And like, all of them are like, yay. And like clap their little hands. And like, it doesn't feel very genuine to me. It doesn't feel like they care a whole lot about the actual culture and people in the neighborhood and history of it. But it is this novelty. I mean, are people, so people shouldn't take tours of architecture. I don't know what I'm getting at. I, <laughs> <laughs> no, I see what you I, I, I do understand what you mean. Yes. But, I mean, there is... There is another, there is another side to it. You know, in some cases, it, it can spark a real interest to actually, you know, do deep research and, and get involved and appreciative uh, of a culture. But... Yeah. I mean, yeah, for a lot of people who take tours, it's it's a box to check off. It's like, yeah. you know, when I went to San Francisco, it's like, okay, we went to Chinatown and Japantown and the Castro and, you know, X, like five different neighborhoods. And you're like, tick, 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 tick. You know, yeah. it's like, these are the things you're supposed to go see. Um, you're, yeah, you're collecting but, your proximity yeah, to things. I stood near that. You know, I'll be entirely hypocritical here and say that if you're ever in New Orleans, take one of the ghost tours, but from a local, like not one of the ones that you find (laughs) on Groupon. Take one from a local that's going to tell you about the actual people that are haunting Cemetery Number 1. It's really cool. Uh, So I'll be a little hypocritical there. Um, Yeah, moving along, I I also want to talk just about the relationship between Jimmy and Mott, because 
this movie rides or dies on that chemistry. And, and so much to the point that when they were writing and preparing for the movie, um, both actors lived together in a hotel room and did what they do in the movie for weeks where one of them took the bed, the other took the ground because they switch in the movie in Mott's bedroom. And um, they would do that for weeks. And um, the uh, Jonathan Majors, the guy who plays Montgomery, who is a classically trained actor, would teach Jimmy Fails like script terms and things he needed to know about how to make a movie. And then Jimmy Fails would help fully realize this character and, you know, almost get into a, a level of method acting with them. And, and, you know, Jonathan Majors made the comment in an interview that he thinks that they were, you know, brothers in a different life in a different world. And you can feel it because this movie, you know, yes, it's about gentrification and it's about the things you tell yourself to get through life and what he tells himself about this house and his family's legacy and how he's tied it to his own identity. But it's also just like a, an ode to male friendships. Like you don't see a lot of male friendships in movies that are like gentle and beautiful in the way that the relationship is between those two. It is so brotherly and loving and powerful. And I just can't, I can't think of a lot of other brotherly relationships like that in movies between two guy friends. It's just it, it's really unique to me. I want to drink my coffee and scratch my ass while I read the paper. You don't read the paper, Jimmy. Because I never had a home to read it in. We could yell. (laughs) 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 The neighbors, Jimmy. Oh, the neighbors? Hmm. I got neighbors now. Yeah, Jane Silent Bob. Of course, Dumb and Dumber. I mean, the list goes on. But yeah, there's just something really like tender about this relationship between the two of them, and they're with each other till the end, and it's beautiful. Yeah, there is a a quality to their their friendship that is brotherhood, right? Like they live together, they are together all the time, Um, and you you really kind of get the sense of just how much they sort of need each other, especially by the, the ending of the movie when Jimmy leaves and it's, it's just Mont and we, I really like that they give us a, a glimpse of, you know, now Mont's going about his day all by himself. And it just, it's so much emptier without Jimmy there. Oh, the shot at the pier at the end, single tear. Yeah, when when Montes is alone on the pier, and he actually made a comment about that in in um in an interview where he's like, you know, at filming that shot, I just felt like the most alone I felt in this world. Like where I was just like at the end of this pier, the camera was super far away from me, and um, Jimmy wasn't there. Uh, and and we'll get into the ending a little bit a little bit later. I think that's probably a good thing to end with. But but you're right, like it's just they rely on each other. And and here's the thing, like Montgomery discovers halfway through this movie. Um, that this house was not built by Jimmy Fales' grandfather, that it it was actually built 100 years before in the 1850s, not in the 1940s. And everyone who has been telling Jimmy that this house for the period and the architecture for the 1850s is right, that, you know, this is not his family home, in the way, at least in the way he thinks it is. Um, and he gets that by seeing the, you know, the deed from the, the realtor, and and he holds it from him. He's going to tell him. There's, I I didn't catch that until my second viewing of this, 
because I had the subtitles on. But when they're standing on the porch together after mm-hmm. Montgomery comes home from the realtor, he says, you know, your grandfather, and then gets cut off by Jimmy mm-hmm. saying, I'm not leaving this place. And as soon as Jimmy says, I'm not leaving this place, he kind of recoils a little bit and says, hey, I'm, I'm here with you. I'll stay. Um, but he's going to tell him, and he doesn't until he incorporates it into his play. Um, what do you guys think of the play where he's doing a one-man play to pretty much all the characters that we've been introduced to in the movie in the attic of this house? I really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just feel like it's it's a powerful scene, right? Like, it's, it's his device not only to tell Kofi's story because he... He he does what I, I love. It's a it's a very incriminating look at all these ridiculous people posting Facebook posts about how, oh my gosh, R.I.P. Kofi, best friend ever. And then he says, right. that guy moved away 10 years ago. And y- you see all those people on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, uh, you know, uh, talking about Kofi. But the people in the room, the ones, those, they are the ones that knew him best. And as Nicole said earlier, you know, everyone knows everyone a little bit differently, and he asks people to stand up and say, "How did you know Kofi? What will you remember him as?" And each response is different, and and then that is also paired with him deciding to tell Jimmy that you know this is not his identity. This house doesn't have to be. It's not even his family house, and and he's trying to pull him away from that and make him realize he's more than that. That he's not just stuck in that box. And I think it's just such a great like, like crescendo to the movie where just everything kind of blows up at once it is and it's and it's beautiful and it's powerful but it's also awful to do that somebody to tell them this huge drop this giant bomb in front of both everyone they know and a bunch of strangers (laughs) yeah I get what what he's doing, and I and maybe this is maybe this would be the one way that Jimmy would listen to it. Does that make it the right way to do it? Uh, probably not. You know, to let's get everybody, <laughs> uh, you know, every because because everybody throughout the film, as it gets known, like this is Jimmy. They know Jimmy for this house, right? Jimmy is tied to this house, and so then what he's doing there is like he is ripping off that part of his identity in front of everyone. He is saying like all those stories he's told you, all of that is, is false. And obviously it doesn't break their friendship. Um, it breaks something in Jimmy. I, I mean, I guess it kind of does based on how things end. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, I mean, it certainly breaks something in, in, in Jimmy and it's, it's rough. It's hard, but it's really beautifully done. Yeah, it, 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 a lot of times we talk about in future classic movies, like acting students will watch this. Acting students, I think, will watch Jonathan Majors in this movie. I I, yes. I was not familiar with him before seeing this movie, and now I want to see everything he's in. Um, which just anecdotally, I do want to throw out there that he's in the new Jordan Peele uh, drama horror show called... Um, What's I had the name on the top of my tongue. Uh, I'll find Lovecraft. it in a moment. Lovecraft Country. Oh. Correct. Yes. Um, and he's on that coming out in August. So it'll be out when this episode comes out um, as the lead character. So hopefully getting more roles. Um, I'm excited. He's working with Jordan Peele, someone who is um, so 
like in the know of hiring the latest and greatest and most talented, you know, black actors in the acting community. So hopefully big things for him. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he, he, he rocks that scene. And then you have the scene where Jimmy and his father, uh, Jimmy senior, you know, have this conversation about the house and, um, it, it becomes clear at that point to me that both of them know that this is true and always have. And for his dad, this saying this lie and repeating it over and over has given him, I don't know, some sort of sense of identity that it gives Jimmy as well. And then maybe that crashed in on him when he lost the house. I'm not sure. Well, what do you guys think of it? I wondered for a minute if maybe... If, if it was at all possible that Jimmy's father didn't know that like his own father had lied to him about building the house and it had become this family legend. But then I realized, you know, that officially at some point his father, you know, uh, Jimmy's dad had owned the house. And so he would know because he'd have seen the deed to it. Yeah. Um, but he's yeah, he, he's attached a piece of his identity to the house, too. But he's he's also it's not all a positive thing for him because he lost the house because of his drug right. problem. Yeah. Um, so I mean it's both it used to be a source of pride and then it became a source of shame. And so I'm you know, I think that's why he earlier in the movie when Jimmy comes to see him and starts talking about the house, he kicks him out. He's like, We don't talk about that house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we don't talk about it anymore. Get out. <laughs> yeah he doesn't let him put together the bootleg dvds anymore so <laughs> right yeah played by the uh the great rob morgan i just want to shout him out always like seeing him in things fantastic. Yeah. yeah yeah but I, yeah i, I kind of got a sense of a little bit like yeah he wasn't the world's greatest dad mm. as kind of evidenced by several things in the in the story <laughs> yeah. and kind of to amplify that like you know this is a, a a line we don't even know like maybe maybe the story originated here like this the dad would tell the kids that even though it was a, a lie and to him yeah over the years that lie came back and twisted on him and, and bit him when he lost the house but i don't know i kind of got this uh, for me there's a little bit of like headcanon there where it's like he was perpetuating the story to a son for so long I think so. I, I think you're right. Um, I also want to talk about the other side of that family, which is the mother. Um, and 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 Oof. this scene just like punches me right in the gut because I have I have family members that are close that you know close to me biologically that if I was to you know meet them on the street, it would go like this, and we and and and, and, and we tell each other the same lies, and it's. Oh my God! It's I think it's, it hit me more emotionally the, these couple times I watched it, where Jimmy and Mont are on the bus, and all of a sudden his mom gets on the bus and she's on the phone and she's talking about how you know she's clearly planning on going to like an AA meeting or something like that. She talks about how she's been clean, so we learn that you know both of his parents had drug problems, and all of a sudden she notices her son sitting across from him, and she's like, "Oh, you know, like Jimmy, it's so great to see you," and they give a little hug and asks what he's been up to. He's living at the house. Oh, I'll come by tomorrow. I have your phone number. I don't have a phone. Oh, well, I'll just come by tomorrow. What time? Eh, I'll just come by tomorrow. She's not coming by tomorrow. And you both know that. And that's what's so heartbreaking about it. Like, it's just, 
it's so real to me. Like people have relationships like that with parents and family members. And that two minute scene captures it better than I, I could possibly imagine. Yeah. Both of them wanting to get out of that situation as quickly as possible. <laughs> but also like yeah, willing enough to keep up the niceties, you know, they're like, Oh, I'll come by tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, I think we, I think all of us to some degree now after lockdown have gotten really comfortable with like not seeing people in person and it's, it's gotten <laughs> weird when we yeah. do, um, <laughs> or there's, you know, like if you're thinking about, you know, talking to someone, you're thinking about texting someone and they suddenly call you out of the blue on the phone and you're right. like, wait, no, no, I'm not ready for this this particular sort of interaction. I mean, that that's what happens to Jimmy on the bus. It's like, I'm not ready for this. No. And the mother is clearly not ready for it either. And she's telling whoever's on the phone that she's, she knows where these meetings are. She's been clean for three years and I don't believe her. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, yeah. I, believe, I believe that she might be mostly clean or yeah. been clean for a little while. Because she Sounds looks like a- well put together, but I, I just the way she says it, I don't believe her. Yeah, it I sounds believe- like a frustrated sponsor on the other end of the phone, like trying to get her to come in. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly be. She's been to these meetings before, probably. She probably goes to them on and off over the years. You know, knows where everything is. Probably sees kind of the same people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's been just in and out for her, though. It's never been. It's serious, and then it isn't. Yeah. It it struck me this time, and, and gosh, I, I watched this movie twice this week. I, I mentioned that in the pre-show to you guys. It was super helpful to me. I should start doing that more often. <laughs> but I watched it the second time with subtitles, and I was really only reading the subtitles. I wasn't really watching the movie, because um, I really wanted to get all the dialogue. And you know, she mentions, and I just didn't catch it the first couple times, she's like, oh my gosh, you're so much taller than last time I saw you. And then it kind of clicked mm-hmm. with me, like, oh my god, how long has this been? Like, yeah. <laughs> it is quite possible he has not seen his mom in a decade, you know, or yeah. longer. And, yeah, uh, so. well, yeah he, says, um, he says he was in a group home, you know, you're right. not typically in a group home if you're living with your parents. Right, right. Living in a car and stuff. It's quite possible. It's, oh man, that scene. <laughs> it's it's a heavy scene. Uh, and, and I also want to talk a little bit about his aunt. Uh, his aunt, which I, is. It, do we know if it's, if it's the, I assume it's his father's sister because she has all of his father's stuff. I think so. It would be so odd if it was a mother's sister. So, I'm 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 ninety percent sure it's the father's. Oh, you know it's got to be because because when he shows up he, to get the dad's stuff, she says, "Did did he put you up to this?" Like I, I I feel like there's a understanding there that she knows his dad pretty well too, and maybe yeah. doesn't think so highly of him. Um, As, but she, I love Aunt Wanda. There's not enough Aunt Wanda in this movie, <laughs> right? Uh, and and Aunt Aunt Wanda um, <laughs> dating some what what's the guy's name that she's dating and is just like <laughs> doing. Rick? Ricky, Ricky is so great. <laughs> I love the shot where he's like, she's like, do that trick again. And he's like on Jimmy's skateboard and just kick, does a little kick flip. And she's like, mm, yeah, starts biting yeah. her lip. And I then it like kicks to him on the ground. And he's just like, yeah, yeah. And just like, does this like nod at the camera. To be it's fair, great. he's a pretty good looking man. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're, 
They're great. I loved, I loved, yeah, as, as Nicole said, not enough Aunt Wanda. And by extension, not enough Aunt Wanda and Ricky. I don't care about Ricky. I want <laughs> the two of them because she is delightful in her, the way that she speaks about him and speaks to him. Yeah, and she has a line at the end of the movie. And, and shame on me for not writing it down. I should have. But she, something to the effect of like when she's talking with Jimmy about the house and, and she's telling him, you know, you had the the you know to tell the truth you had to tell yourself these lies or something like that something to that regard where she she's she's comforting him in the fact that like this was part of your identity and you had to believe this home was going that was in your family because this is how you became you um and then she kind of you know nudges him to move on from it uh which is probably healthy at this point <laughs> for Jimmy. I think yeah. Jimmy needs to move on, um, which I, I suppose is oh, go ahead, Nicole for it. Oh, sorry. Um, she, I want to ask him if she's, if he's, if he really wants to fight for that house all his life, because she knows that's, that's what it's going to take for him to right. be able to move. It. And, you know, she's, and you get the feeling that if he decides that's what he wants to do, she's going to support him. She's going to be there for him. Um, But, you know, and she also says that she, she's trying to give him a sense of his own value as a person. She says, if, if he does leave, it's not his loss. It's San Francisco's. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that actress, um, and I'll pull up her name here because she's just so darn good in this movie. Uh, Tanisha Arnold. Uh, she was in an interview where she starts, I and mean, she's gushing about the movie and how it's you know the best project she's ever worked on. She loved everyone on it, and I guess everyone that worked on it was very close. And and she starts talking about how, and this is where it got me thinking about it as a future classic as well, because she calls the movie a moment in time. You know, it has the human fe- themes, friendship, passion, sorrow, um, but it also captures, you know, this city in flux, the gentrification, the fact that San Francisco in particular is an ever-changing city. Um, for listeners who have not been to San Francisco, it's kind of every bit as weird as this movie makes it seem. <laughs> like the random naked dude on the bench, the Silicon Valley assholes in the in the trolley drinking. Like it's all kind of a, that that's San Francisco. <laughs> like that's kind of it. And it captures that really well. Yeah. yeah. I, I love that with the naked dude. You know, I, I love that he puts down the towel. I'm right like, before yeah, sitting down. I'm like, who is that for? Is that for him or is that for us? Like other people. <laughs> it's for him and it's a courtesy. It's right. That's actually a big part of nudist culture is you bringing your towel around to put on chairs before you sit down. Huh. <laughs> As a courtesy. You know. Good for him. Uh, and so you don't stick to it. <laughs> right yes and, and perhaps the 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 other aside from the uh the segwayers the other instance of just ridiculous white people in this movie is the the silicon valley uh you know tech entrepreneurs on their booze cruise trolley um chanting at this poor man uh just yeah <laughs> my goodness yeah. and they move off and the naked guy turns to jimmy and he goes oh this city Right, <laughs> Jimmy's like you don't have to tell me. Yeah. <laughs> don't you love how like Jimmy can just never seem to catch a bus until he does in this movie? <laughs> like he, yeah. half the scenes of of exposition are just him sitting at bus stops telling people the bus is not coming and hasn't come for a long time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so let's let's also talk a bit about 
Uh, I'm, I'm going to actually scroll down our, we've got a lot of good discussion topics here. Let's talk a little bit less about the movie for a moment and about how it got made. Um, so Jimmy fails, first time actor, first time writer. He wrote the movie. Um, and helps write the movie. Helps Didn't, write the movie. Like three people write the movie? Yes. He Him wrote Joe Talbot and. Correct. It looks like there were two additional people that came in at the end for assisting with the uh, screenplay okay. part, but the story. Yeah, the story is by him, and then him and Joe Talbot ended up writing the rest. Um, Joe Talbot is a director uh, who is his childhood friend, and uh, they grew up together. The Again, movies loosely based on Jimmy, but also on a, a kid they knew. Um, neither of them had any formal training. Uh, Talbot's a high school dropout and with an interest in film. And they had only ever made a short film preceding this that was very widely acclaimed. Like, it got them en- enough recognition to get a24 on this um we haven't really talked about a24 but this is an a24 movie and doesn't surprise me because they seem to be the studio that's willing to fund everything awesome nowadays um ladybird hereditary moonlight that sort of stuff um and uh and then i'm sorry i lost my train of thought there uh i guess my point is is how'd they make something so damn beautiful? Like this movie's so beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's beautifully written. I, I, we haven't talked too much about the cinematography, but it's like very surreal and dreamlike. And everyone's like hyper focused in these shots. Well, with, with very colorful backgrounds that are almost kind of blurred out. So you have this really heavy emphasis just on the people and the people alone. And this is all being created by two dudes that just wanted to make a movie about a kid. They knew like, that's amazing. Some people just have an eye for that stuff, man. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it is beautifully directed and, you know, Jimmy fails does a really, it's a, <laughs> it's a very vulnerable naturalistic performance. Mm-hmm. And he, I wonder if he thinks of it as just him kind of mostly being himself on screen and just letting himself be himself on screen. Um, but I don't know. Cause I don't know the man. I don't know how similar the character of Jimmy fails is to the real person. Um, but apparently very similar from what I understand. It, it's really nice when you get people who are not professional actors. Um, and who knows? I kind of hope Jimmy Fails goes into acting after this. Um, but yeah. it's it is so nice when because there's talent out there. <laughs> there's talent for being on screen out there that has not spent their whole lives uh, dedicated to it and trying to get to Hollywood and trying to catch their big break. But there's this people who have these these charismatic qualities that don't get shared and it's a shame and it's really nice when that gets found and shown and shared with the world and i think that's what's happened here yeah there's I, I a think bit with of both of them uh, yeah i think there's a bit of a perfect storm aspect as well it is you know the right people to tell the story all came together and and told it and it worked out beautifully you know they have a, a well-written well-acted, well-shot movie that 
these people are all going to go off hopefully and do other things. And I'm sure they will all be good. Hopefully they are good. Hopefully, you know, we learned that, that Jimmy fails does have a, a talent and, and has a lot more in him, but I think we're not going to see them quite in the same way as they are in this movie, because it feels just so much like uh, them all coming together in a, in a unique way. Yeah. And, and I think part of that is that you have, you know, you have these two guys that grew up in San Francisco, and apparently Jimmy Fails as a person is just like a walking San Francisco almanac where he just knows everything about the city. Um, and you have people like Donald Glover, who who is a native to San Francisco. Um, another contender for emotionally wrenching scenes for me is uh, Mont, you know, recounting movies to his blind grandfather i don't think it's his father grandfather his grandfather yeah because they watch them together all three of them on the couch in this tiny little love seat and and mont has to sit there and kind of whisper in his grandfather's ear of what's happening on screen and it's it's just it's really it's just warm and, and beautiful and i love it um but i wanted to read a quote here from vanity fair uh as with any such production there were plenty of times the project almost fell apart uh, when pitching the movie to distributors, Talbot and Fails found that executives were intrigued by the idea, but only if they could cast Donald Glover or Michael B. Jordan in Fails' role. That ended the meetings. What was so special and integral about this movie is Jimmy in every way, Talbot recalled thinking. Um, I also want to mention this other quote from the article, which I just found amusing <laughs> um, regarding the cinematography. Um, the team also struggled to land a permanent photographer. Scheduling conflicts led to one leaving to make a Flamingo documentary. Another lived outside the U.S. and couldn't work with a, a visa. Uh, Talbot grew so desperate that he found himself writing a letter to Paul Thomas Anderson, who had just made his feature cinematography debut on his 2017 film Phantom Thread to see if he'd be available. I was like, look, I know you're young in your career as a cinematographer, Paul but your film phantom thread shows great promise so if you'd like to pick this one we'd love to have you that gambit didn't work so talbot eventually landed on adam newport barra who filmed barry uh the obama um biopic and then also euphoria for hbo and that kind of clicked with me because if you've seen any bits of euphoria this guy has a style and it kind of is similar to this movie um so yeah it's just I, i i love everyone in this i really hope that you see more of, of these guys in, in more unique things. There's nothing yet that they've been announced aside from um, what's his name. I'm, I'm I'm blanking on names now. Uh, Jonathan majors aside from Jonathan majors is doing a ton of stuff. So super excited about that. Um, a couple other brief discussion topics before we talk about the very end of the movie. And I think that's a good way to wrap up the show. Um, there's just a great quote in here where there's these two women on the bus sitting across from Jimmy toward the end of the movie. And they're talking about oh, how much they hate San Francisco. They're living in squalor. Everything's a dumpster fire. It's a total mess. Why do we even live here? And, uh, and then he's like, well, you, you, do you love San Francisco? And she's like, well, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> and they start complaining about it. And he says to them, you know, you can't hate it until you love it. You, uh, you have to love San Francisco to hate San Francisco. And, um, I just, I, that quote kind of stuck with me because like, I kind of get where he's coming from. Like you, you really have to be emotionally invested in something to the point of loving it that you can then turn to hate it. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. 
if you go somewhere and it's awful and everything sucks and like your life is terrible, I don't blame you for like, if you move <laughs> to San Francisco and you can't afford rent and you're barely like scraping by and you know, I wouldn't blame someone for hating it then and not having, but I, but I understand the sentiment because I get it. Yeah. I and that's also, not these girls. Like one of them is like, I'm right. just working for a startup. Right. So like, you right. know, she's working for like, like making, you know, six figures. It's just, uh, yeah, no, I, I hear you. Well, so six figures that'll that'll get you a, a corner of a one bedroom apartment <laughs> right in a Stanford silicon valley America. startup that's true <laughs> yeah right because no, I, I was just gonna say i have I've, I've had these similar feelings about phoenix which is where i'm from and, and i really identified with jimmy jimmy and a lot of that because you know san francisco is changing around him constantly it's it's this whole new thing and you know i loved phoenix when i lived there and I go back now and, you know, all my friends are gone. They've moved to other places or they, you know, they don't really hang out together anymore. And stuff's changing all the time. There's like restaurants near my parents' house that were never there before. Like there's all new storefronts and places I used to know and love and go to were gone. And it's, it's just like, it doesn't feel like the Phoenix that I grew up in anymore. And I understand that attachment to it and, you know, that, that kind of lost feeling you feel when it all starts to disappear. Yeah. I mean, that. I think it also, yeah, it, it speaks to a, a contrast between Jimmy's point of view where home for him is this house. You know, mm-hmm. this, this house is home and it's, it's like a, at the root of his identity. And I think a lot of times we grow up thinking that the, the place either the house or the town that we grew up in is home. But I think really it's the people who we grew up with that are home. You know, like I, I get together with a group of my friends from my hometown and it's, it's like being home again. You get, you feel comfortable, you feel relaxed and like you're somewhere safe and can say whatever. Um, But you know, you're in, someplace that's five towns over from where you used to live or you're in a different state or what have you, but it still feels home like, you know, and that's, I don't know if that's a, a dichotomy. That's if that's something that only exists for some people where people are home and for other people, places really are home and they get fixated on them. Or if that's a universal thing. Right. Yeah, and, and the, this uh, that's what I love about this movie is that it, it kind of explores, you know, what is that sense of home for Jimmy. Um, I, I'd like to talk about the the music as well before we talk about the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, I I really really love the score. Um, it, it it has just the right amount of you know sweeping little pizza pieces of orchestral that just kind of dip in and out of it, but also just a great selection of songs that they've also chosen to include in the, in the soundtrack. Um, in particular, I, there are very few recordings I can think of in recent memory, recent release anyway, that are just more emotional and beautifully sung than, um, Michael Marshall, uh, a Bay area native, Mm -hmm. um, singing. His rendition um, of San Francisco. Yep, San Francisco, you know, flowers in your hair. And, oh my God, that song, I could listen to his rendition of it on loop and it's beautiful. And that in particular is a very interesting guy because he kind of came to a little bit of fame earlier 
in 2019 than before this movie came out because he's the I got five on it guy. Um, the guy that sings the hook on that song. And then they remix that song to make it scary for us with Jordan Peele. And then it became a big hit again. So um, they actually went out and found him in an article I read. And, and apparently he just lives like he, he likes to live what he calls a low key lifestyle of putting out new music and growing weed. Um, and, <laughs> and, he, and, and he does kind of like do some of that like street performing type stuff that you see in the movie. He is what some people refer to as like the forgotten Bay area musician, like had a beautiful voice, Involved in a lot of really cool things, never really made it on his own. Um, but he's in this movie as well, so love not love to see he's not only in the movie, he sings in the movie, but is also on the soundtrack. Um, but I, I just I love the music. I just can't get over how well scored it is. Um, it just is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, not really anything I can say. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I should actually call out whoever did it. We're toward the end of the podcast, and I don't have it up. So uh, it was wonderful. All right, so let's talk about the ending of the movie. Um, ending of the movie, Jimmy leaves. Uh, Jimmy goes ahead and writes a note. Thank you for being my best friend. Um, tears gushing down my face at this point in it. And as as he leaves, and, uh, and we see this shot of him in a rowboat um, going across the bay. Um, I assume it's more symbolic that I'm just going to go live in Oakland now. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm just so, so done with San Francisco. Um, but yeah, it's like this, like, it's almost like this, like Walt Whitman poem come to life on screen where he's like freeing himself from the shackles of San Francisco and leaving everything behind and going to the sea. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know what to make of it. And I know you guys didn't either. I I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's beautiful and it's poetic and it's uh, a good reminder of basic geography. Uh, <laughs> people forget that there is an East San Francisco because it's on a right. peninsula. It's not on the coast exactly. It's it's on a a peninsula where the northern um, border is on water as well. Um, So, but across the bay from San Francisco is Oakland, and that's kind of the more, I don't want to say traditional, I think the more historically notable divide is that San Francisco is very heavily white, and Oakland is where more of the African-American residents uh, congregate, I think, mostly due to economic and systemic racism factors um right there's a san francisco is i i believe it's the most expensive city in the country to live in now isn't it i i believe so it's always Uh, in the top five always 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 and Um, it reminds me of a line from the simpsons when uh the family is uh, i think i think they're swimming away from alcatraz and lisa's (laughs) like swim towards san francisco to which homer replies i'm not made of money we'll swim to oakland (laughs) (laughs) yeah right but I mean, is he where's he is he going to start his life over? Is he just going to start a trek eastward? Is he and just, is just out the first for a leg row? of his journey? Is he just out for a row? Yeah, is he just getting some cardio in? Who knows? I, I, it's an arm day. Funnily enough, I actually do believe that's the, for me that's the answer is that he's not doing some sort of grand 
you know, make landfall in Oakland, and that's now where I live. Um, <laughs> right. I, it's almost like a purifying thing, I think, which the ocean often is in, in, in symbolic ways. But it's just like this letting go. And, and I think him going out early in the morning and the sunsets, you know, over behind the Golden Gate Bridge behind him, it's it's just a, a kind of this this removal of him from that need to be at the house and, and just yeah. start a different stage of his life. Well, yeah, and I and I think um, I, I do think he would be going back. You know, he's obviously very close to his grandfather. He would not just uh, be like, "All right, Grandpa, see you later. I'm going to go row out into the ocean. Good luck." His uh, grandfather. Yeah, to Mons. Oh, to Mons. That, oh, oh, wait, Jimmy's oh, the wait, one that, on the boat. Oh, Jimmy's the one out on the boat. Oh, I totally missed that for some. How did I miss that? <laughs> that changes everything. Uh, yeah, no, I think. Uh, yeah. I, I think for him, as as has been said, it is a. It's time to move on, and moving on for him, it's got to you know he's, he's got to be he's a little bit dramatic. I always felt Jimmy was a little bit dramatic deep down in his soul. Oh yeah, so he's he's doing it in this dramatic way. You know, he's not just going to get on a bus because the bus ain't ever going to come, and uh, he broke his skateboard. So, right, he's got he's got <laughs> to steal the boat and row. Yep, yep. Uh, I, I do like, we don't really know what Jimmy does to make money, aside from the fact that we yeah. see him very briefly working as a caretaker in an old folks home. Um, and and there is a, God, this movie's full of very human sad scenes. But like, there's a scene where he's, he's you know, doing the, the bed for an older woman that's at the home. And, and she she's like, oh, hello there. And, and she's like, oh, you're you're so handsome. And he jokes her. I'm a little, you're a little young for me. And it's like this witty little banter. And then it restarts and, and it's, it's just, it breaks your heart because you can tell he has this conversation with her every day that he's there. And, and it's just, that's life, man. That's all I got to say about this movie. It's like, I think that's why I like it so much. Um, any closing thoughts on the last black man in San Francisco? Do you guys think in any capacity it might be a classic? Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, definitely. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 um, it sounds belittling <laughs> to say it's a, it's a small classic, but I mean, it's like mm-hmm. this movie, even though it's, you know, the city of San Francisco is part of it and this big, beautiful house is part of it and it, you know, goes back and forth across the city and it's got this, this span to it. It's a very intimate movie in a lot of ways where it's just about this very small group of characters um, and their lives and stories. And so it doesn't have, it doesn't have the epic scope that some people will want to hang on a classic movie. Right. But I mean, it's, it's lovely. It's beautifully made. It's well acted. It's well written. It's clearly coming from the heart uh, of both the director and the stars. And it has a lot to say. And, you know, outside of the opening with the street preacher, it's not, it doesn't beat you over the head with it. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Once once you get past that, you discover it. Yes. Once you get past that street preacher part, it's like, okay, so we've kind of set that tone. Now we're just going to live in this world. Oh, there is a nice little callback with the street preacher where, you know, at the bus stop, they're wondering, I wonder if he like practices that at home. Yeah. I really like that. (laughs) Because that that speaks to sort of like how it's to them become so mundane. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, right on. I'm so glad that you guys guys enjoyed it. Um, I'd highly recommend people check it out, obviously. Um, I also just have a, anecdotally, I have a gut feeling that A24 at some point will dominate a lot of future classics in her category because. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way it used to be, you know. you know, curse and spit on the Weinstein's, but the way the Miramax used to be, like right. the the one yeah. churning out the Oscar bait, um, A twenty four's really putting out some very high quality stuff. Yeah. So yeah, farewell. Eventually, there'll be another one that's that I'll be bringing for a yep. future classic. I'm sure, unless one of you does first. There's already so. one of theirs that I plan on. Yeah, so we'll definitely be back to A24 at some point. Um, well, very good. That'll do it for myself, David, Nicole. Next week, reminder, we are watching Police Story, the first one. Be sure to check it out. Uh, let's go around the table, see where we can find everybody online. Nicole, what are you up to? I take care of our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Podcast. Very good. And what about you, David? Follow me on Twitter at DevLuz. That is D-A-V-L-U-Z to find out all the stuff I do. Very good. You can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. Go ahead and email the show. Hi, H-I at MGRpodcast.com. We would love to hear from you, particularly if you have a thought on future classics. Is there a film that we haven't covered that falls within the last 10 years that you think is a future classic that you know we should consider for this? Like, Let us know. We would love to hear your thoughts. Or if a film like this, if you think it is or isn't a classic, we'd love to hear from you. Hi, H-I at MGRpodcast.com. Please go ahead and write in. But until next week with Police Story, that'll do it myself, David, and Nicole. We'll see you then. In these dreams of San Francisco If you come to San Francisco Summertime will be I love in there. That was good. Thank you, sir. <laughs>